love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller. Hey, we're going to be taking care of business in a variety of ways here, talking about what we do during the week. You know, everybody looks forward to the weekend. Thank God it's Friday. We hear those kind of cliches all the time. What are you doing during the week? Is that something that you enjoy? If not, stay with us. We're going to be talking about how you and everybody else listen to others here and ask questions that let us know they're working on this whole thing about how to find or create work that is meaningful, fulfilling, enjoyable. Got a couple questions today that talk about hating their work. Seems to come with the territory. Sometimes we just kind of assume that's as good as it gets. Of course, we hate our work. Of course, we hate the boss. Of course, we're against the company. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, why would we spend our lives in that kind of a negative environment? Nope. Life is too short, too many options. We're going to change things around. Well, here's some of the questions we'll be looking at today. Dan, how do I pitch a show for a reality TV series? Dan, I recently graduated with a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and am having an impossible time finding even an entry-level position. Dan, I'm beaten up daily in my job by debtors screaming and yelling at me, but I can't leave because we're getting out of debt. Now, there's an interesting one. We've got some real red flags there that we need to pull down out of the air and address. How about this, Dan? I feel like I might be gifted for pastoral work, but I don't want the distasteful parts that come with the job. Boy, is that a common malady today? Yeah, I'm a pastor, but I hate 95% of what I'm doing. Got to be better solutions than that. And someone wants to know, will the new book, Wisdom Meets Passion, be available in audiobook form? I'll bring you up to date on what some of the things that are happening with Wisdom Meets Passion. Thanks for being with us. I love this time during the week, each time where I open this mailbag of questions that you, the listeners, have submitted. Real questions. Let me know that you're in the game. You're trying to figure this thing out. If you got a question, just go to the 48days.com site. Click on the podcast link and you can leave your question there. You can also use the Google call-in number. That number is 304-729-4848. Imagine that. I'll give it to you again. It's 304-729-4848. You can leave a brief voicemail message there. Well, Aristotle once said to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. Well, there's a pretty concise formula. If you don't want any criticism, it's easy to not be criticized. Just say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Now, you can make sure that you don't get any criticism if you follow that formula, but I'm sure the be nothing part of that quotation bothers you as it certainly does me. That's not what you want to do. You want to jump in the game. You want to be a player. You want to add your opinion, share your advice. Be open about your struggles. In the process, you will become something. You know, this whole issue about finding your passion that I'm dealing with so much these days. People say, I don't know what my passion is, Dan. Well, you don't find your passion by doing nothing. You find your passion by doing a whole lot of things, by risking things you've not done before, by trying things out, going places, reading books. That's the way that you discover your passion in the process of doing things. 
Well, Stephen says, I was telling my son about a business idea I had, and since it is similar to American Chopper, only using a special, reasonably inexpensive technique for making custom one-of-a-kind cars, he suggested I pitch the idea for television. I hadn't thought of that, but when he mentioned it, I knew he was onto something. My questions are basic. How do you set a price when pitching a reality TV series? How do you pitch it? To whom do you pitch it? How do you protect the idea throughout the process? Well, Steve, you got a whole bunch of questions here that are, these are big, these are 10,000 foot level questions. And I'm wondering, what are you doing at the, at sea level? Don't worry about how to price it. Just get out there, get some interest in what you're wanting to do. And I would do the business first. I think it's going to be really tough to pitch an idea as the basis of a TV show before you are doing the business successfully, do the business successfully. Then you'll attract attention. I mean, you, you mentioned American chopper and that was on for several years. I don't think it's running anymore, but you know, the father son team there, I mean, they were building motorcycles. That's what they were doing. Yes. The TV show made them extremely famous and they were able to go on to other things, leverage that for other things, rightfully so, but they were already doing that. They didn't start doing motorcycles just based on having a TV show. I would encourage you to do that. Now there are certainly people out there that you can contact. I mean, Mark Burnett, I mean, he's on the front cover of success magazine this month. Grab that. I mean, you'll see things that he's doing. I mean, he's got a whole lot of shows out there like survivor celebrity apprentice, the voice. Are you smarter than a fifth grader shark tank? I mean, there's a whole lot of things that Mark is doing. He's really positioned himself as a player, bringing a lot of unique things to the TV. So sure, you can pitch your idea to those people. Don't be too worried about protecting your idea. I mean, if somebody, if you're talking to somebody who has the ability to make this happen, they're going to see you as an amateur. If you say, well, gee, I want you to sign disclosure papers. And, you know, I'm afraid about sharing my idea. I mean, they get a thousand ideas a day presented to them. They aren't going to just grab something and take it away from you. If, if it really is an idea and you have the means to produce it, I mean, then it can make you a player in American chopper. Let's see. That was on discovery channel and produced by pilgrim films and television. I mean, you can approach you. This is like doing a job search. You find 80 companies that produce TV shows. You can pitch it to all of them. Just like if you were writing a book proposal, same kind of thing, find your target audience, pitch it to them. I, I was just uh, actually did a, a little film clip for one of the reality TV series. I didn't go looking for this. It was something that knocked on our door by virtue of the book that my son and I just wrote wisdom meets passion. And we were filmed on the world's strictest parents because of the parenting that we use with Jared, Jared going through some, you know, pretty challenging times and his mom and I, because of the parenting skills, somehow got back to this show. And there were two kids who were sent over here from Belgium. They're not siblings, but one was, they were both teenagers. One was a girl, one was a guy. And Jared and I spent about three hours with the guy. So they were out here filming on our property, walking around, and he spent a lot of time. I think the time he spent with Jared was probably a lot more significant than the time he spent with me or with both of us. But this is a kid who's real arrogant and obstinate and turning his nose up at everything comes from wealthy family in Belgium and says, you know, heck with you. I don't want that kind of lifestyle. I want to do my own thing, drugs and 
smoking and drinking and all those things is he just thinks it's his life. You ought to be able to live it. Well, you know, you're going to change a kid's life in a three hour reality TV show. Now he was over here for a week and I lived with a wonderful family here. And hopefully there were some little seeds sown that may in some way impact his life in a positive way. But I don't know why I've been through that in. I'm not a big fan of those kind of TV shows. I think they're a waste of time for the most part. If you've got an idea, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hinge it on whether or not you're going to have a TV show based on I just do the business. That would be my encouragement. Well, Craig from Arizona says, Dan, I recently graduated with a bachelor's in chemical engineering and I'm having an impossible time finding even an entry-level position. I've had multiple interviews with several different companies and have even been flown out of town to continue the interview process. I've been met with continual rejection. Oddly enough, my greatest success is from applying for positions online without personal communication. And when I've tried networking by contacting individuals I know, I'm met with statements like, go online and apply for the position, or I don't have time for this. I'm about to take a job in a non-engineering related position with a cubicle in which I have no passion or interest, but it's become my last resort. Thanks. Keep up your great work. All right. Now, Craig, if you've had multiple interviews where you've been flown across the country and so on, and you have not gotten a job offer because of that, I would look real carefully at your interviewing skills. Practice with a friend or get an interviewing coach. If somebody invested, wanted to invest in flying you across the country, then certainly your resume presents well. They saw you as a serious candidate. But if even after that investment, they did not make you an offer for some reason, they just didn't see you as somebody they wanted on their team. And this is where it gets very individualized. But that's why I would look exactly at the part where you know the process is breaking down You're getting an interview request. Your resume is doing its job. You're getting interviews and no job offers. Boom. There's the problem. There's the weak link in the chain. It's in the interview. And so get a coach. I mean, this is too important to just let it fall to how you are naturally. I mean, look at the Olympic athletes. They don't just get out there and somebody's a good skier or a good swimmer. No, or a good hurdle jumper. No, they are coached in every tiny minute detail of what they're doing every aspect of what they're doing. I mean, so much so that people are criticizing the process saying we no longer have natural athletes. We just have robots because they're so carefully coached in how they breathe, walk, run, step, jump, everything. So maybe it gives them an unfair advantage. I mean, if that's what you, if you want the end result of getting a job, then get a coach so that you interview. So you make yourself a top candidate when you're interviewing. Now, the number two thing I would, tell you is don't negate the value of the journey. Don't negate the value of the journey. I mean, don't think that there's a perfect first job that you have to get over the next 10 years. You're going to get a lot of clarity about what kind of work you want to do. And that may come from working five different jobs. I mean, that's going to be pretty much average. Actually the average job for somebody in their twenties, which I assume you still are is 13 months over the next 10 years, you're going to have seven or eight jobs. That's okay. Just go with what's offered to you. Get in the game, refine your skills, identify your strongest areas of competence, and then you'll be ready for a next position. Hey, I'm going to send you a copy of Wisdom Meets Passion. We're finding that a lot of uh, young people are really engaging with the content there. 
We're just about ready to officially release it. Hey, we do have that project going on Indiegogo. If you haven't seen that yet, go check it out. Indiegogo is one of the sites like Kickstarter. We got a fun kind of thing happening there. Some special packages for Wisdom Meets Passion. But I'll I'll send you a copy of that. We'll get that shout out to you in the mail. But yeah, check out the check out the fun we're having at Indiegogo.com. Just put in Wisdom Meets Passion. You'll see the project come up, see where we are, the kind of special things that we're offering there. And um a whole lot of people are participating. It's been, it's been a fun kind of thing to do. And just an experiment on our part to uh, see if there are new and unique ways that we can engage our readers and listeners. Well, here's a question comes from Jennifer. She called in on the, uh, on the Google voice line. So I'm going to play her call and we'll unpack it. Hi, Dan. This is Jennifer from Indiana. Um, I've been a radio listener since May, really have enjoyed your show, read your book. Thank you very much. My question now is, when I fill out online applications, the last four or five have asked for salary and earning um, that we've made in the past. They want to know our past salary and earnings, and if we don't enter those in, then we can't proceed with the application. So I've had two follow-up interviews. I've sent my cover letter and my resume, and then I've gotten a follow-up call and then received their email to fill out their online application, and that's where they ask for the salary requirements or salary that we had had in the past. And I don't know how to get around that. I feel like that's confidential information that's mine, and it's of no merit in what I need them to pay me. I feel in a way like they're trying to take advantage of my past. And so... I didn't know how to deal with that. Again, this is Jen from Indiana. Thank you. Bye. Well, Jen, you've identified a very common problem when you are filling out online applications. Now, if you have read 48 Days to the Work You Love, you know I'm not a big fan of that process, period. You put yourself in a weak position if you're filling out online applications, if you use the process that I lay out in 48 Days to the Work You Love, where you identify in advance the 30 to 40 companies that you see as good targets, you approach them without knowing if they have any positions available, I mean, without having seen that they have posted a position that's open. No, you just know they're a potential candidate. That's how we find the 87% of the jobs that are in what we call the hidden job market. And that's how you bypass this inane kind of process of filling out applications. Now, if you are in that process and they ask, and it doesn't allow you to go on in the application process unless you do fill out your salary history, then you have to do that. I mean, if you want to play that game, you just have to play it their way. Is it unfair? Are they taking advantage so that they have all the the cards in their hand? Absolutely. I mean, that's what they're doing. I mean, if they have a position and it's $45,000 and they see in your salary history that the most you've ever made is 35, they may come back and say, you know what, this is going to stretch us a little bit, but you're a really good candidate. We're going to offer you $38,000 and you just left money on the table because they may have 60,000 positioned for that ready and allocated for that position. So anytime you have to give your salary history in advance, yes, it puts you at a disadvantage. It works against you every time. It can't work for you. If you have not been making as much as they're prepared to offer, they may think you're not really a true candidate. You're not up to speed. If you're making $10,000 more 
than what they're prepared to offer. They may think, well, gee, you're already past that. I mean, there's such a tiny window where there would be a fit. It's always going to work against you. That's why you want to stay in the driver's seat in the interviewing process. So if you're taking the initiative, you can bypass this filling out the application kind of garbage, get an interview where you're sitting there in front of somebody. Then if they ask you early in the interview, Jen, you know, what do you have to have in order to take this job? You can very professionally divert that question. You can say, you know what? I've always been compensated fairly for the work that I've done. I'm sure it would be true here as well, but I'm not really sure what the responsibilities would be here yet. Let's talk about that a little bit more. And then if I see that there is that I can fit responsibilities that you have, I'll be happy to describe what I think those responsibilities would be justifiably compensated with. And, and then when you get to that point, you do that. You know, based on my understanding of the responsibilities, I would see that in the sixty to sixty-five thousand dollar range. Is that within your budget? It, it. You don't have to say, "Well, I'm used to making twenty-eight, but I really, you know, think I need a lot more than that." And, and it's an alley, as you well know, if you've listened or read any of my material at all, you know that compensation has nothing to do with what you need. The fact that you've got a $2,000 mortgage and a $700 car payment has nothing to do with how somebody ought to pay you. You're paid based on what value you deliver to the company. Always. That's what the determinant is. And that can work for you as well, because if you've been in the same job for 15 years and recognize you're underemployed, meaning you aren't being paid what your market value is, then you can jump up dramatically as you go from one company to the next. Well, this is Dan Meller on the 48 Days Online radio show. Each week we take your questions, break them out, take some that are good examples of the common questions that we get, looking at how we can make work more meaningful and profitable as well. If you've got a question, just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link. You'll see a little box jump up there. You can submit your question. I'd be delighted to consider that for an upcoming show. Well, here comes a question. This is an interesting question. This comes from Kim. Uh, Kim is in Michigan. She says, what do you say to someone who's in a negative environment, such as debt collections, and I'm only there for the money? I'm beaten up daily by creditors or debtors screaming and yelling at me, but I can't leave because we're getting out of debt. I listen to positive things when I'm not at work, but I can't shake myself from being unmotivated because of my eight hour negative job help. What do you say when you're in that kind of an environment? I'll tell you what to say, Jennifer. I mean, rather uh, Kim. Oh, (laughs) there's the old song. There's a reminder. You know, we may joke about that. But trust me, if you're in a job that you hate that much, don't stay. Get out of there. All right. Well, hey, I'm going to send you a fresh copy of 48 Days to the Work You Love. But you need to create a 48 Days plan to be gone. G-O-N-E, gone. Now, what about the deal that you are in debt and you're paying off debt? Well, what about that deal? If you want to get out of debt quickly, get a job that you love. It's a whole lot easier making money doing something you love than continuing to do something you hate. How much do you want to drag this out? 
Two factors. You hate your job, you need more money. You hate your job, you need more money. You hate your job, you need more money. Quit. Go somewhere else. The fact that you need more money, that you're paying off debt, is certainly not a reason to stay where you are. That is a good reason to leave. I mean, when, when people say that I'm just going to stay here in this stinking job, you know, until we get caught up or on our bills or we get our debt paid off, and then I'm going to go do something I really love. Well, I mean, the implication, the implication is that if I really go on to something that I love, I'm going to make less. Why would you think that? If you are in a job that you hate, your best skills are not being released. You're not functioning at maximum capacity. It's just impossible. It just doesn't go together. What if you get in a job that really released your best skills? You know what's likely to happen? Not only are you going to enjoy the job, you're likely to have more money show up than you ever have experienced in your life. That's just the way that it works. It's a release of peace, fulfillment, joy, and money. That's how it operates. You need to be gone. Don't stay there till you get your debts paid off. Leave now so you can pay your debts off and pay them off more quickly. Well, Mo from Valdosta, Georgia says, I've always been interested in the radio industry, but never pursued it. I'm now retired military, working in IT for a local university. I've thought about trying voiceover work to supplement my income. How does one get started in that industry? Thanks. Your book, 48 Days and Website, really helped me in transitioning out of the military to the work I do now. God bless you. Well, thanks for your question, Mo. I talked about this, I think it was just a week or two ago. I talked about voiceovers and I said that, you know, I have so many people like what you hear at the beginning of my show. I mean, when, when I come in and I come in, this right here, this voice is great voice. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. That's, that's Bob Borquez. He's a guy that works for Dave Ramsey. He's been there for years. Great guy. Great voice. For a work overhaul. This is the program for you. Now, here's your host. Well, that's Bob Borquez. But now, I've also got, you know, clips by Pierce Mars that I play on here. I've got a whole bunch of things. I have never paid somebody for voiceover work. And I, and I kind of blew it off when I talked about it before. It's just, you know, it's like finding a needle on a haystack. And frankly, I think it is. I think it's a very difficult challenge because it's too easy to find great talent in that to think that it's something where you get paid well. Now, could you do your own podcast and create a whole lot of listeners? Or could you have your own radio show? I mean, sure, there are things you could do, position yourself so people recognize your voice. I mean, look like what Paul Harvey did. Paul Harvey had that great voice that was so recognizable. And we see other people like James Earl Jones and people that certainly have a distinguished voice. But you get your work cut out for you. Now, it is possible to do that. I mean, you can go to like agent99voicetalent.com, agent99voicetalent.com, or go to voicetalentnow. Com. I mean, there are agencies that will use your voice. And then when somebody asks for that, you know, they'll get a little clip. Now, I don't think you're ever going to be able to, you know, pay the mortgage in doing that. I would be very surprised, but it might be pocket change, little side things that you can do. Again, I may be underestimating the potential here for somebody to get into that, but being 
in the voiceover business requires a whole lot more than just having a great sounding voice. You need to develop a reputation, you know, know how to handle auditions, know how to sit in a booth for hours on end, repeating the same lines over and over. I mean, being a professional is, is as important, if not more so, than having a great voice. Now, I just recently did the audio. Jared and I did the audio for Wisdom Meets Passion. I read easily, and in doing my part of the audio, it was clear that it comes pretty easy for me. I mean, they talked about how many pages are normally done in an hour, and I do about four or five times that because I don't have to stop and go back and start over again and take out the us and ums and all that. And they asked me if I would be willing to read other people's books for the audio book. I said, not a chance in the world, not for all the tea in China. I don't enjoy sitting in a booth reading out loud, and I'm sure the pay would not be that compelling, that appealing. I, I don't know. I have no idea what it was. I certainly didn't ask because I have zero desire to do that. But they ask if I would be willing because they look for people who have great voices that are willing to do audiobooks. So that's another thing that you could you can look at. Could you do audiobooks for people? Publishers usually do not use the author. No, we talked about that when I just did this, but I've done all my books where the audio is done. I've always done them. I prefer to do that. I think it's a more authentic connection with readers than to just have somebody who just has a voice read it. But only about 15% of the time do publishers use the author as the voice because for the most part, they don't think the author really comes across that well in an audio format or the author stumbles, even though they're great writers, some of them don't read that easily. It's a different kind of skill, I guess. So you might check that out and you can check with Thomas Nelson. They're my publisher. Apparently they're looking for people to, to read books. I think that would be a, well, I think that would be a boring thing to do. Frankly, I love reading, but I can read a whole lot faster just reading than I can reading out loud. I mean, that's a very slow, tedious process to read aloud, but uh, obviously there are people needed to do that. Another way thing you can check out. Well, Stephanie from Portland says, Dan, last week you had a question submitted regarding apprehension to making phone calls from a car salesman. I have some insight to offer after reading the book, how to make people like you in 90 seconds or less. Okay, that's not a book I'm familiar with, but sounds great. How to make people like you in 90 seconds or less. I learned that people are all some combination of visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learners. Because I'm primarily a visual learner, I have the same uneasiness about phone calls, but I do well at sales. Because I don't have any visual clues on a phone, it adds a layer of complexity and apprehension for my learning style that isn't there when I meet someone in person. For each phone call, I have to focus on making sure my speaking tone is as friendly and warm as possible and visualize a happy person on the other end. Even knowing this, I'd much rather ring the doorbell than pick up that phone. Hope that provides extra insight for that listener. Well, thanks for your comments, Stephanie. Uh, we, We all have an individual style that we can develop in being good at selling. I mean, selling is not something where we're just a natural born anything. Selling is something you learn. You learn how to do it well. Had a lady last night, I happened to yesterday had a modem go out 
here at our office. So I had to run over to Best Buy, got a modem. Well, it's not an easy kind of thing. Then you have to reinstall and have your password from your online internet provider. And it ended up being a two hour process, most of which I was on the phone with a representative from Netgear who spoke very clear English but with such a heavy accent that I had to back up. It was like three steps forward and two back. She was very sweet, and ultimately we got it handled, but it was extremely complicated in trying to communicate with her. So you're right. Voice has a lot to do with it. My voice coach, Dr. Ralph Hillman, is a dynamic guy. He can make himself appear to be totally different people right in front of your eyes by changing his voice. So he can sound like a sophisticated Boston attorney. He can sound like somebody from the Midwest, somebody from Ireland or Scotland, if he wants to, or somebody from the deep South with an accent. And it changes your perception of him. I talked to somebody just the other day who had just heard Andy Andrews do a presentation and Andy Andrews came out and started his presentation talking like Barney Fife. Uh, Andy Andrews happens to love uh, that show and um, has gone to Mayberry. I mean, he's got all the old Andy Griffith shows, but he started his presentation talking like Barney Five, and she talked about how he changed right in front of their eyes as he then went into his normal speaking voice. Now, it's funny because his normal speaking voice still has a lot of uh, Barney Five twang to it anyway, but I can just visualize now Andy uh, doing that where he pretends to be somebody else. Learn what it is you do well. Learn how you sell. Learn how to connect with people well. And you can become good at selling. You, As I talked about last week, you want to make sure the sales model fits who you are. You may not be the person to sell cars, furniture, jewelry, real estate, or it's nose-to-nose, face-to-face. You may be somebody to sell high-ticket, low-prospect numbers, So if you're selling a $100,000 printing machine, you only have a few prospects for that. That's a very different kind of sales process, different kind of sales interaction than selling something that's just a one-time quick impulse kind of item. Or you may be good at selling where you develop systems, where you sell incredibly. I mean, you can make a million dollars a year and never talk to somebody, never see them, never look them in the eye, never try to go for the clothes because you've developed, you're good at developing systems where you can sell online. And that's primarily what we do in the 48 days business is we don't have salespeople manning the phones. We have systems manning the inquiries. The systems walk people through questions they have. They make their selections and go on and make a lot of purchases. Thank goodness. Well, let me just hit this again here. Just to remind you, this is 48 Days Online Radio with your host, Dan Meller. The 48 Days comes from a book title from a few years ago, 48 Days to the Work You Love. Talk about 48 Days being enough time to take a new look at where you are, where you want to be, make a plan for heading in that direction. It's enough time to do that. If you got a question for the show, just go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link. And you'll see the opportunity to submit your question. I'd be delighted to consider that for an upcoming show. Well, Mark from Houston says, can you speak to the times of challenges and frustrations, even in the work you love? Have you experienced this? And how do you work through it? Have I ever had any challenges, frustrations? Yeah, you better believe it. I set the bar pretty high for what I do. So I speak, coach, and write. 
primarily. But I set the bar pretty high for what I want that to accomplish. Does it frustrate me when we don't hit those goals? Absolutely. Now, at the same time, you've heard me talk about goals. I set goals so that I have about a 50-50 chance of hitting them. So it's not like I'm totally blown away or just go bury my head in a hole somewhere. But sure, it frustrates me. But the frustration challenges me to look for better ways to do things. How do I improve things? So I don't back away from things that are frustrating. If I didn't have any frustrations, it, it would lead to mediocrity very quickly. It would lead to complacency. Well, things are pretty well good the way they are. No, just yesterday I was complaining to Joanne. I said, you know what? I've had an amazing year, but there are some things where I just feel like I haven't accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. But again, what that does, it just motivates me to figure out, okay, how can I do this better? I mean, the thing we're doing on Indiegogo right now with Wisdom Meets Passion, the way to introduce that book is something we've never done before. It's just something I wanted to try. So my frustrations and challenges of wanting to do things bigger and better opened me up to doing things in new ways. I would encourage you to see it the same way. Don't just try to bury your frustrations in your work. See it as a prod to get you to do something else. Now, when I'm working with people, personally coaching them, I often use the analogy of the eagles that make this amazing nest. So they make this nest. It can be like seven feet across and they use bush and leaves and branches and thorns, things to tie that together, make it strong. So it's way up there somewhere. And then they have the little babies. Well, after about 12 weeks of being in the nest, mom and dad start taking out the things that make it pretty comfortable in there. So they start pulling out the leaves and the fur and things that they've used in there. And all of a sudden there are thorns broken through and those little eaglets are thinking, wow, this isn't too comfortable in here. You know, it's pretty uncomfortable. And then they get up on the edge of the nest and they think, wow, it's, it's painful down in there. And then mom and dad eagle fly by with those tasty morsels of food just out of reach, but they don't give it to the little eaglets anymore. And the kids are thinking, Hey, what's up with this? Jeez. And ultimately they're hungry uncomfortable they look over the edge and they think oh my gosh if i go off the edge of this thing i'm going to go straight down hit the rocks and die but you know what happens pretty soon with enough encouragement and enough discomfort frustration and challenge they do go over the edge but instead of going straight down they discover they can fly and they go to levels of excellence that they had never experienced before. Well, I think the same thing is true in our own work lives and personal lives. Those things that frustrate us. I mean, earlier this year, I talked about having an emergency appendectomy. What prompted me to take a fresh look at what I'm doing health wise. I made some dramatic changes and did some things that have, my gosh, it was like cleaning out my computer. I got a total reboot because I just started doing some things. Well, had I not had a challenge in the health area, I probably wouldn't have taken a look at that. Things were okay. I would have just kept going along. So that's the way I look at challenges. Those are prods for me to take a fresh look and figure out how to do things better. Now, here's a great question. This comes from Alan. Dan, I left a good job, went to seminary, graduated with my MDiv in 2011. Masters of Divinity. I'm about six months away from entering the pastorate. For some reason, I'm still not thrilled about being a pastor. Parts of the job excite me, but there are parts that don't. Things I'm not great at and won't enjoy doing. 
And he goes on, he says, yeah, my wife encouraged me. You know, she says, I'll be great. Uh, but if it sounds like I don't have a plan, you're exactly right. I'm at a crossroads. I feel like I'd be entering ministry half-heartedly, but I really hate the idea of changing direction yet again. It's been a sacrifice for my family to get me this far. He says, I think my concern is that I feel like I might be gifted for some pastoral work, but don't want the distasteful parts that come with a job. The pressure of a sermon or two every week, the long hours, typically low pay, the meetings and administration, committee work, staff supervision, dealing with people's expectations. I'm also not crazy about studying theology. The parts I do enjoy and am good at are helping people, visiting, counseling, teaching. I feel like I just want to cherry pick. Does this reflect immaturity or an unrealistic desire to have the fun, easy parts and avoid the hard work? Or is it that my gifts would be better used in a different setting? Wow. Okay. You packed a whole lot in there. We could write a book on just that issue alone. You're drawn towards something that is good, godly, humanitarian, but you see a whole lot of the components of that that are not appealing to you. Those things you talk about, the pressure of preparing two or a couple sermons every week, the long hours, Typically low pay, meetings, administration, committee work, staff supervision, dealing with people's expectations. I suspect that what you just described there is going to encompass about 95% of your time. 5% you'll be able to stand in, the, stand in the pulpit and deliver that great sermon that you enjoy doing. You enjoy uh, helping people, visiting, counseling, teaching. Here's what I would ask you to do. If you start as a pastor somewhere in America, chances are you're going to have exactly what you describe, low pay, long hours, unrealistic expectations, and be required to do a whole lot of things other than just visiting, counseling, teaching that you do enjoy. So the question is, are there other opportunities to do those things more completely than what you would have the opportunity to do in a position with the title pastor behind your name? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could teach if you taught in a school, maybe in a private school, maybe in a seminary or university setting. Could you counsel? Absolutely. Could you be a coach? Absolutely. I mean, could you lessen the, the, all those negative parts by being in a, pa- a position other than a pastor? Yeah, I suspect so. What I want you to do is not assume that there's a hierarchy here for what is most godly. That's where we get into trouble. People force themselves into a position where there's not a good fit, where they are required to do things they don't really enjoy because they think, well, somehow that's at the top of the pecking order. That's the most godly. No, if you're gifted as a teacher, counselor, encourager, then find an opportunity to fully engage those skills. That may be working as a counselor, as a teacher, or something even um, more generic than that. But don't assume that it's somehow more godly to make yourself have a position that doesn't really fit you well. Stay away from that. Make a list of 20 things that you could do other than being a pastor. Now, this is not going to negate the value of your MDiv or any of the education that you've got. Nothing at all. It's not going to negate that. I mean, that's part of who you are. That's part of how you've prepared yourself to be the person that you are. But be very, very cautious about forcing yourself into a position that you see so many red flags in before you even start. Just the mere fact that you see so many red flags convinces me that's not a good choice. 
don't do that. You can do other things that are just as godly and apparently going to be a much better fit. Valerie says, how do you take the leap to doing your own thing when half of a household income depends on you? Well, Valerie, here's again the underlying assumption. The underlying assumption is that now that you're, let's say that you, let's just use round figures so that you have $100,000 household income, 50 that is you, 50 that is your husband. So you need to contribute 50. If you did anything less than that, it'd be a hardship. How do you take the leap to doing your own thing when half of a household income depends on you? The assumption apparently is that if you did something on your own, your income would drop from what it is now. Don't assume that. I mean, there, if you think about how companies hire, if a company brings somebody on as an employee, your efforts ought to generate three to five times what they're going to pay you. So if you come on to a company and they're going to pay you $40,000, your efforts there don't produce $45,000. That would be a stupid business move on their part. Your efforts are ought to generate a hundred or $120,000 in order for them to justify bringing you on as an employee. So theoretically, if you left and continued doing what you're doing now, but did it on your own, theoretically, you ought to be able to immediately increase your income. And certainly if you're designing a business to go into, you ought to be able to project, you ought to be able to see that it is going to increase your income not decrease it. Now, there are a lot of factors at play here, things that I don't know about. If you want to do something that's just more satisfying and it's not going to pay very much, then you need to work that out and just make sure it's something that you and your husband are in agreement in. So it still is a family goal and makes sense for everybody involved. But so often when I hear questions like this, the underlying assumption is, wow, if I go out and do something on my own, then we're going to have to learn to live on beans and rice because the income's going to tank. Well, I've never started a business anticipating to make less money. When I went through a horrendous business disaster a few years ago, had created this amazing hole that we had to dig out of, owed everybody in the world money, including the IRS. I mean, I owed about half a million dollars and I knew that I had a clear choice. I was employable. I could have gone and gotten a job, but I knew that I had to make a lot of money. I had to find something like Dave Ramsey would say with a big shovel. I had to get something where I could start plowing away at that big debt that I had created. And I knew that if I just took a job, I'd never see the light of day financially. I'd never catch up. It'd never be enough to survive on with a family with three children, small children at that point and eliminate the debt. So I knew my best choice was to go into business for myself once again even though that's where I got us into trouble initially, but I still was convinced without any hesitation. I mean, I was a hundred percent. There wasn't 1% of me that said, no, just go get a job. A hundred percent of me screamed. You got to go back out here, do something on your own. If you're ever going to see the light of day again, if you're ever going to own a house again and have a house for Joanne to entertain guests in as she loves to do, that's exactly what I did. So, I would never assume that going into business for myself was going to decrease my income. I would assume it was going to take it three to four times what it was currently. Well, a couple more, Dan, will the new book wisdom meets passion be available in audiobook form? Yes. I think it's already up on Amazon. Now it's done through my publisher, but I'm pretty sure it's already up. I mean, I know we created it. Well, as a matter of fact, I know it is because we've already ordered those. We've already 
ordered the audio book. So we're going to have them available as well. Again, the official release date is August 28th. So you'll see everything go up on our site. We're going to have all kinds of options for that. But uh, we've already got some cool things there, again, with the Indiegogo option. But that does not include the audio. But yeah, the audio book is going to be available. Now this is, I want to, I want to wrap up here and I want to talk a little bit about our coaching with excellence event that's coming up. I get more requests regarding coaching than any other single thing at this point. Now we get a lot about writing and I love those as well, but I get more about coaching because so many people feel like, especially in perhaps going through a transition or reading, reaching a little later stage in life, I could be a coach. You know, I could do something that really encourages people. I could be a sports coach or I could be a spiritual director or I could be a life coach or career coach or parenting coach because of my, or a business coach because of the experience that I already have. I mean, that's a great vantage point. It's a great starting point for being a coach. One of the things that comes up a lot is people really have a heart for service and they are perplexed by this issue of ministry coaching, coaching that you may do where you don't get paid for it. Now, there's a place for that. I mean, my dad was a pastor. I came out of the church. I, my business, as it is now, grew out of teaching in a church setting. So there was a lot of ministry coaching that was going on. I very gently shaped that into paid coaching. Um, it, it really happened very quickly. But as I shaped it into that, I had to deal with the issue. Okay, how am I going to handle the people who can't afford to pay? I still do a lot of ministry coaching. I think everybody in coaching does. But I also know that there's not really a challenge in doing that and also thriving, prospering financially. You can do both. It doesn't have to be either or. I don't have any kind of sliding scale for my coaching. I'm paid extremely well for my coaching. But if the situation merits it, usually what I do is just say, why don't I just meet you for lunch? I don't go pay, take people through the same process as what those people going through the Eagles Club are paying for. But I often just say, hey, let's meet for lunch. I mean, I do that a lot today. I mean, yesterday I, I swung by the bank and transferred some funds for Jared in his anticipation of going back to Mombasa, Kenya. And the little gal there broke into tears, started telling me about how she feels really called to do something, but she's stuck in this job at the bank. Well, I ran out and got her a copy of, you know, wisdom meets passion, gave it to her. What she really needed was a two hour session to kind of unpack it and give her better direction. I can't do that with everybody, but I can shape what I do so that I have options available for everybody. Now, I do that by creating, you know, books, ebooks, pamphlets, audio products. I mean, we have lots of resources for people that I can give away generously. I can't do that with my time. My time is very difficult to get. And for that, I'm compensated very well when I do coach people personally. Those are some of the issues that we unpack in Coaching with Excellence. And we got the next one coming up September 13th and 14th. It's going to be the last one that we do this year. Coaching with Excellence, where we talk through how to position yourself as a coach, but then how to position yourself as a business so that it really is a business. I mean, we know that 85% of coaches never make more than $40,000 a year. Now, that's horrendous. I mean, if you, how can you coach high achievers? How can you coach the $400,000 CEO if you're not sure you're going to be able to put beans on the table tonight for dinner? I mean, I think it's a tough position to be in. You ought to coach you coach well out of a position of strength as a personal individual. It's tougher to coach out of a consistent place of weakness. 
That's what we talk about in Coaching with Excellence. Check it out. If you're interested in being a coach, if you've ever had any desire to turn your skills, your expertise, your intellectual capital into coaching, check out under live events at 48days.com. Join us in this event coming up. It'll be right here at the sanctuary. It's two days packed with information. We have a lot of fun during that time, but give you a whole lot of information about how you can turn your coaching into real income. Hey, thanks for being part of this community, this growing community. Check out the activities at 48days.net. A whole lot of people there who, in fact, are doing just like you, who are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, joyful, peaceful, all those things, and profitable. No better way to move yourself up financially than to be doing work you love. 